Right, okay, something a little bit different uh, that we're going to be starting doing uh, tonight. Uh, most of the teaching that we've done thus far over the years that we've been going has been what you would call systematic teaching or systematic theology to give it its correct name. And basically what that is, is taking subjects and you've got a subject, all right? And whether it takes one study, two studies or 28 studies, as in the Church Life series, for instance, what you're doing, you're taking a subject and you're going through the Bible systematically, i.e. you're just working your way through it to get all the info you can from the Bible on a subject. And so in regards to that kind of stuff, in that sense, whoever's doing it, they're setting the subjects, if you like, and then they're going through the Bible and finding all the data that they need. Now, that is one aspect of good Bible teaching, but there's another aspect, and we haven't really done much of that here, and now we're going to start doing it properly. And if you want its correct name, we're going to start doing some expository teaching. Now, it simply means this. In systematic theology, you've got a subject, and you're going through the Bible to get the info you need about that subject. Expository stuff is taking a book of the Bible and going through it verse by verse. Is he? And that's what we're going to start doing tonight. And we're actually going to start with Philippians. And one of the nice things about this stuff, all right, is if you like, it cuts out the middleman. It cuts me out. Can you see? I've got no decision in what the subject's going to be. Because you're just taking a complete portion of the Bible, you're going through it verse by verse, trying to understand it as best you can. And therefore, we're going to end up going all over the place, you know, and, and sort of a chance to get into various books, and this one written by Paul, and, and to really get stuck in and take whole portions of the Bible. We'll start with Philippians. There'll be other books that we're going to do over the years, but we'll start with this one, and just go through it and take as many studies as it takes to work our way through through the whole thing. Um, so if you turn to Philippians, and um, we'll really get, you know, sort of stuck into this. Um, now then, Philippians, in the New Testament, for those who are new. <laughs> um, kind of, it's, uh, it's after Ephesians, if that helps. It probably doesn't. So if you don't know where Philippians is, why should you know where Ephesians is? But it's after Ephesians, for those who want to know. <coughs> Now then, the first thing to do, obviously, is that basically if you're studying a letter, because Philippians is a letter written by Paul to the church at a place called Philippi. Now, in order to understand the content of the letter, it helps to understand something about the people and the situation that he was actually writing to. And, uh, and let's start off, there's not a great deal to say, but fundamentally, Philippi still exists today, and it is in the northeastern corner of Greece. All right, now, of course, all of you can conjure up in your mind a map of the Mediterranean, because you did this when you did O-level geography, didn't you? So pull that map up in your mind, all right? And if you work your way round, when you get about there, you've got Greece. And that comes down there, and it goes up there a bit. And just up there, south of Bulgaria, and neighbouring Turkey, just there, isn't this clear? You have the city of Philippi. So fundamentally, it's a city in northeastern Greece, just south of Bulgaria and next door to Turkey. So now you know exactly where Philippi is. <coughs> and Philippi is also the first church that Paul the Apostle ever planted in Europe. Now, back to the map, the picture in your mind. As you know, the Middle East, if you go round like that, you come into Europe. See, because Europe stretches round, doesn't it? And so the point was that as Paul started to work his way west, all right, when he got to Europe, 
This was the first church that was ever planted in Europe. When Paul the Apostle hit Philippi and started preaching, it was the first time that Europe had ever heard the gospel about Jesus. And when Paul planted this church, when he went there, he was with Luke and Silas. On that particular trip, he turned up at Philippi, and we're going to see this in a moment. He turned up and he had Luke. Now, Luke is the guy who wrote Luke and Acts, okay? And he had Silas, who didn't write anything at all, but nevertheless, he was one of Paul's buddies. Now, this church was obviously mainly Gentile. There would have been Jews in it, but Philippi was mainly a Gentile, you know, town. Some Jews would have been around, but the issues were Gentile, not Jewish, okay? Now, let's actually see, because in this instance, you can't do this every time, but in this instance, as luck would have it, as it were, if you go to Acts 16, we have the story of how this church started. So before we actually look into the letter that, that Paul wrote to the church, let's see how this church actually started. And if you go to Acts chapter 16, <coughs> Acts chapter 16, and if you find yourself verse 6, we'll just meander our way through this. When, when one's doing literal verse-by-verse verse stuff, we're just going to meander. We're not going to belt. When you're doing systematic stuff, when you've got one subject and you're demonstrating it from Genesis right through to Revelation, you've got a belt. But when you're doing expository stuff, you can meander. So this will be a very meandering kind of affair. Right, let's start from verse 6, all right? Acts chapter 16 is starting from verse 6. And they, and the they here, all right, is Paul and blah, blah, blah. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Isn't that odd? Everyone's saying, well, you've got to preach the word of God wherever you go. Well, no, you know, not necessarily. Uh, they made a crack in Asia, and the Holy Spirit said, no, shut up. Because he had someone else he wanted to be working in Asia. Very important, make sure you're where God wants you. Not enough to just be doing what God's word says. It's kind of important to be doing it in the place God wants you to be doing it, you see. Uh, you know, and Paul was very, you know, I'm, I'm going to change the world for Jesus. And Paul kept going to the wrong bits. And every now and then in Acts, you find that the Holy Spirit forbade him. You know, the idea is that, that Paul's got a burden for somewhere and he's going somewhere. And the Spirit's convicting him. No, but Paul's determined to go there and eventually it's a bit of a fight. So here, the Spirit forbade him. All right, to speak the word in Asia, because that was down to someone else, you see. Uh, and when they had come opposite Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia. So Paul's lost the argument with the Lord, all right, about Asia. And he says, right, Lord, I'm going to go to Bithynia. And once more, the Lord's saying, no, you're not. You're going to go where I'm sending you, you see. Um, and then what happened? But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them, all right. So passing to Mycenae, they went down to Troas. I mean, by now, it doesn't matter where they're going. <laughs> Believe me, Paul now, he's going round in circles. Can you see? I mean, he's got a burden. He knows the Lord wants him to preach. Uh, but having a call isn't enough. You've got to know that you're, you're delivering that call as the Lord is leading you. So he's tried to go there. He's tried to go down here. And he's not having any joy. And now he's kind of running round in circles between Mycenae and Troas, all right? So he's running round in circles in Troas. And look what happened. Now the Lord gets through. Now the Lord gets through, all right? And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia, that's what the Jews call Greece, all right? Macedonia, Greece. <laughs> Easy, isn't it? Simple when you know how. Man of Macedonia was standing, beseeching him, and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So here, Paul knows that through a vision, God is saying, it's Greece, Paul. No, it wasn't Asia. 
No, it wasn't Bithynia. No, it's Greece, all right? So eventually Paul gets the message. He's got his guidance right now, hasn't he? But only after lots of fights with the Lord. All right. And when he has seen the vision, immediately uh, we sought to go into Macedonia. Now, I just want to draw your attention to that. In verse 6, it was they. Can you see? It was they. And now it says we. Now, the reason for this is that when Paul was running around in circles trying to find out where to go, Luke wasn't with him. Luke wrote Acts. So it was Paul and Silas. But now, Paul's got it right, and he's met up with Luke now. Can you see? So now it's we. See, because Luke is now with Paul, all right? So Luke is saying here, and when he has seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Weren't they clever? <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's brilliant. They were so clever, these guys. They really were. I mean, Paul has a, a vision of a man from Macedonia. He's burning to preach the gospel. Everywhere Paul's trying to go, the Lord's saying no. Then he gets a vision of a bloke in Greece. Come and help us. And here, now we read, we concluded that God called us to preach the gospel to them. These were clever guys, you know. They really were. Anyway, so setting sail, therefore, from Troas, we made a direct voice to Samothrace. See, now forget all this. It's hardly. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Philippi was quite an important place in Greece at the time. Not so important now, but then it was. It was kind of a crossroads to the east, you know, to the Orient and stuff like that. So it's quite an important, tactically good choice, this. Uh, we remained in this city some days. Now, what's happening here, okay, is the way that, that the Lord tended to work in planting churches. He sent people out and he got them to the right place, and they started to mosey around, and of course they were there. And what you've got to remember is that these guys, everywhere they went, no one had ever heard the gospel, because the gospel had only just happened. So there weren't any Christians anywhere, so they were starting from scratch. It wasn't a question of, let's go and find a church to go to, because, because there weren't any. They were starting from absolute scratch. So for a few days they kind of moseyed around. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, remember it was a Saturday, because Luke is writing here, you know, and he was working with Paul, who was a Jew. So as, even though Luke was a Gentile, when he talks about the Sabbath, he's meaning a Saturday. Uh, so on the Saturday we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down <coughs> and spoke to the women who had come together. Um, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. Remember, people worship God even before they heard the gospel. But when you've got someone who's really searching for God, all right, when they hear the gospel for the first time, okay, they realize, oh, of course it's Jesus, isn't it? You see. So this woman, she's getting born again here, but she'd been worshipping God before that. She knew there was a God, she was worshipping him. But that's all the info she had. Along comes Paul, oh, by the way, it's Jesus. So, obviously, she becomes a believer. And when she was baptised with her household, she besought us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So, what you've got here is they think, well, let's go somewhere where there are people, all right? And they found out somewhere that was clearly a place of prayer. Okay, and they thought, we'll start there. And a load of women there. And so they get amongst them, and they start telling them about Jesus. And what happens is Lydia gets to be a Christian. All right, she gets born again. And incidentally, and when she was baptised, you see, it's the same day. No messing here. She got converted, so they baptised her, and all her household. And what we conclude from that is that Lydia, you know, she got born again, she went home, told her family the good news, they all got converted, so they had a mass baptism, family baptism, same day, as soon as possible. No rigmarole, no services, 
no baptism classes. These people have been converted, they were baptised. And go through the Acts every time you'll find it. Born again, baptised, no messing about. Remember, they didn't have services, they didn't have churches, anything like that. Uh, they just had what God was doing. And of course, we've gone and complicated it all in the last 2,000 years, haven't we? We church rigmarole. It's got nothing to do with the Bible. It's rigmarole, okay? Here, she got converted and they baptised her. Incidentally, the fact that Lydia was a seller of purple goods tells us something. It tells us that she was a very rich businesswoman. Uh, because there's a particular little worm. That in the ancient world, there was only one way to get purple dye. I mean, today we've got chemicals. But then, and it, it, it was a worm. There was a little worm, and you had to get thousands and thousands of these worms, and you had to crush them up, and that's how they got purple dye. But these worms, because they were so rare, okay, were kind of really expensive. So if you sold purple dye, I mean, you might be able to afford a red jacket, but if you could afford a purple jacket, you were rolling in it. And that is why in the ancient world, purple was always the colour of kings. Official regalia in the ancient world was purple, because it was the most, a purple garment was the most expensive you could get. Because they got the dye from this worm, and, and it needed millions of these worms for a little bit of dye, okay? And uh, so this tells, she was trading in real upper class goods, this woman. She was well off. Incidentally, there's a bit in Isaiah, I wasn't planning to go into this, but I will very, very quickly. There's a bit in Isaiah that you, you, you might have read, all right? And it's a prophecy about Jesus. And it speaks about Jesus saying, I am a worm and no man, all right? Now, what has tended to come to, from that is what I call kind of worm theology. And some Christians, <laughs> some Christians, they kind of go around preaching as if the gospel is that we are absolute nothing, we're worms, we're worms, we're nothing, you see. Now, that's not what the gospel, we are sinners, yes. But the point about that, a prophecy about Jesus and Jesus becoming a worm and no man, now, that is not trying to say, well, this proves that mankind are mere worms, because we're not. All right, God values us more than that. We're sinful, we can only be saved by his grace, but we're not nothing. I mean, we're precious to God. He made us. Now, the reference there is to the fact that what happened was that Jesus was crushed. He was crushed like these worms, and out of him being crushed, his blood flowed, and the most precious thing that you could have came from that, our forgiveness of sins. Can you see? So that reference in Isaiah to Jesus being a worm and no man, it's a reference to that, how precious it was, the thing that Jesus did. Anyway, enough of that, enough of that. Right, now verse 16, because they've come along, everything's going great. People are now being converted, all right? Now there's got to be a drawback somewhere. If there's not a drawback, you can't be in God's will. If there's not eventually a drawback, if there's not something goes wrong, then something's wrong. You see, look, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by soothsaying. She followed Paul and us crying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul was annoyed and said to the spirit, I charge you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Uh, now, when we come onto the demonology series, we're going to you know, really be going into that little story. Uh, it's a bad translation. It's not here a spirit of divination at all. Um, we'll be going into the fact that when people get spirits of this, that and the other, that doesn't come from the Bible. And that's not what the Bible says here. What it says is this woman had a python spirit. <laughs> and you're going to have to wait for the demonology series for an explanation of that. But this woman, she had a python spirit. And fundamentally, because she had evil spirits, she could tell the future. All right? These evil spirits gave her that power.
And because she could tell the future, there's always mugs around who want the future read to them. You know, palms read, stuff like that. So the guys who owned her, because she was a slave, made their money by using her. Now, she starts to follow Paul around saying, these men are Christians, you know, they're, they're following Jesus. And it really annoyed Paul. Now, you'd think it would make him pleased. Why was he cross that she was doing that? Well, I'll tell you, it was the evil spirit inside her that was doing that. And the point is, Paul was a Christian. He was preaching about Jesus. Jesus utterly forbids anything to do with spiritualism or foretelling the future. Now, this girl and the evil spirit inside of her, by making it look like they were all pro-gospel, it was kind of making it look that Christianity and the occult go together. Can you see? And they don't. They're totally opposed to each other. That's why Paul was annoyed. This evil spirit in this girl was trying to make out it was like Christian, that spiritualism and Christianity are the same thing, and they're not. So Paul eventually, you know, he waited. He waited. Notice that unlike so many people today, he not, here is someone who's got a demon, and they're manifesting. And it's happening day after day after day. Why didn't he pounce on it as soon as it started happening? Well, that's what, that's what Christians do today, isn't it? Oh, because Paul understood God's timing, is he? Paul didn't just pitch in immediately. Paul understood God's timing, so he waited, and he only cast the thing out when he knew God's time would come. But in verses 19 to 24, and here, here's the real point, <laughs> okay. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, because this woman, the evil spirit's gone, it's been cast out, she can't tell the future. If you can't tell the future... No one's going to give you money for telling the future, aren't they? So they've lost their livelihoods, you see. And they dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace before the rulers. And they brought them into the magistrates. And then they started, you know, lots of false charges, okay? So now what happens is that Paul and Silas, they get banged up on trumped-up charges. I mean, they're doing 10 years now. They're doing a stretch. They've preached the gospel. They've set someone free from being demonised, and now they're in jail. Can you see something's got to go wrong eventually? Satan's going to hit back. And so they end up in prison, all right? They're beaten up by the guards, they're flogged, okay, and they're dumped in prison because Satan doesn't like it when you're serving the Lord, okay? Now, in verse 25, look at this, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They've been chucked in jail on trumped-up charges having been beaten, and they're having a praise session. <laughs> not a moan session, not a groan session, they're having a praise session, like that. That says something, doesn't it? Now, what happened here, okay, is that there's an earthquake and God sets them free. God makes an earthquake. <coughs> now, what happened was, everyone else from the jail fled, but not Paul and Silas. What happened was, uh, is that when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, why was that? Roman colony. Under Roman law, if a prisoner escaped from your charge... It was the death penalty. And the Romans sometimes came up with some rather nasty ways of killing you. So here, the jailer, there's been an earthquake. And he automatically thinks they've escaped. If they've escaped, I'm responsible, I'm going to be put to death. So rather than face that and not knowing how they do it, he decides to commit suicide. It was just the simplest thing to do, the easiest thing to do in the circumstances. But you see, Paul and Silas hadn't run away. Even though the, the prisoners now fallen down, all right, they haven't run, they're still there. So they call out to him, that's all right, we're here. Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out saying, men, what must I do to be saved? Now, why is he asking them, what must I do to be saved? 
Well, because they've already told him the gospel. <laughs> as soon as they got in prison, they, they've told everyone that they're Christians. Now the jailer has heard this. These men could have escaped. They're still there. He thinks, crikey, they're different. I need what they've got. Can you see? These men aren't frightened. They've been beaten up and they're singing hymns. He's been, you know, he's crying out to God now because Paul and Silas have proved to him. He's seen God in their lives, you see. So he says, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. All right. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all that were in the house. All right. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptised at once with all his family. He gets converted, his whole family gets converted, and what happens? That night they're baptised. Can you see the picture about baptism? Why we do it the way we do it here and not the way that everyone else does it? Because this is the way that the Bible teaches, okay? And so now, other people have got converted as well, okay? And then if you read down from verse 35 to 40, which I won't bother to do, uh, basically what happens is that uh, they're set free. Because, I mean, obviously the authorities, they realise there's something a bit different about these two blokes. I mean, some people, you can just lock them up in jail and forget about them. But when you've got two blokes, you lock them up in jail and the jail falls down. <laughs> There's, 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 and they kind of got the message, if they locked them up in another jail, that jail would have fallen down as well, can you see? So what they do is they set them free and they just tell them, out, you know. So Paul and Silas now get kicked out. But obviously by now quite a few people have got converted, alright. So that gives you an idea of, of how this church at Philippi started it, alright. Now then, chapter 17 and verse 1, let's just carry this through. Now look. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now, here, Luke carries on the story of where Paul went to next. All right. But, <clears throat> when Paul got to Philippi, we'd already noticed that Luke was saying, we. We. So, Luke went to Philippi with Paul and Silas. But when Paul and Silas moved on elsewhere... Luke said that they went, alright? So Luke was part of the we, but now he's saying they, okay? Now, go over to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. <coughs> now, in Acts chapter 20, it's six years later. Six years later. And what happens is that Paul now, he's passing through and he's going to Corinth and he's going there from the Ephesian church, alright? And then again he's travelling back on his way to Jerusalem, alright? So what he's doing is that Paul is calling back at this church that he planted six years earlier on his way somewhere else, alright? Now in verse 6, look at this. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So Luke was with Paul and Silas when they went to Philippi and planted the church. When Paul and Silas moved on, Luke says they moved on. Six years later, Paul comes back from back there, all right, and then Luke says we sailed away from Philippi, and Luke is back with them. Now why is that? Well, I'll tell you. And this is the pattern that the early church planters used. Luke and Paul and Silas planted a church at Philippi, right? And people started to get converted. Now, in this instance, God called Paul and Silas to go somewhere else and plant other churches. And for six years, Luke pastored 
the new church. You see? Luke took all these new Christians under his wing, carried on preaching the gospel, got the church going. Now, the point was, it took Luke six years to bring that church to the point where it had its own indigenous elders. Now, can you see? God doesn't want churches led by one man. He wants them led by a plurality of co-equal elders. We've seen this. But those elders have got to be mature men of God. Now, when you've got a new church, you haven't got mature men of God. You ain't got mature anyone except the people who planted the church. So it took Luke six years of leading the church on his own and preparing elders. The moment that that church could run itself, the moment that it had a plurality of men who could be raised up to be elders, then Luke cleared off back with Paul and Silas. Can you see? Planted church. Now, if the church planter isn't going to be part of that church for the rest of his life, he will raise up men who can be, and here it took Luke six years, and then he'll clear off again. Can you see? So there are times when baby churches are going to be led by one person. And that one person has got to go it alone until other people have been raised up who are mature enough to lead the church as well. So basically, Luke pastored this church in Philippi on his own for six years. After six years, it had its own elders, and then no problem, off they went, and that church could then be left, basically, to look after itself. All right. Now then, in regards to the actual letter, we are now four years later. All right? The letter was written four years after this incident, so around 11 years after all. Uh, you know, 11 or so odd years, all in all, since Paul planted the church. And he's writing to them, all right? And interestingly enough, this letter that Paul's writing, all right, to the Philippian church that he planted 11 or so odd years before, he's writing to them from jail. <laughs> Paul's in jail again. Only this time he's in jail at Rome, okay? And what had happened was, is that the Philippians, and this is the background to the letter, how it was that it came to be written, the Philippians had sent one of their own people, a guy called Epaphroditus, right? Now, he was one of the Christians at the Philippian church. What they'd done is that they, they, they knew that Paul needed support and money. And in this instance, they knew that Paul needed it fairly sharpish. So what they did is they raised the money between them and they sent Epaphroditus right the way over to Rome. That way, sorry. <laughs> on my map, anyway. But you're looking at me, so yeah, it's that way on yours. And sent him over with this money to give to Paul from the Philippian church, okay. Now, what happened was that, that this, I mean, journeys were arduous in those days. I mean, you didn't just, you know, jump on a tri-star, uh, you know, or jump on the tube or something. They were arduous journeys. And Epaphroditus, what happened, he obviously wasn't in very good health. And this whole expedition was too much for him, and he nearly died. You know, he kind of <coughs> clapped. He was so ill by the time he got to Paul. He was practically dying. In fact, Paul thought he was going to die and peg it. <coughs> and so what happened was, is that Paul said to Epaphroditus, look mate, I think you want to get home. I, I mean, I, I know that you'd love to stay here with me and help me, but I think you'd better get home. So Epaphroditus, he found Paul, alright, he got all the money to Paul, alright, a gift for Paul. And, uh, and Paul says, you'd better go home now, because you're a bit poorly, and said, can you take this letter? You see, and Epaphroditus took the letter back. Let's actually see this, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, verse 25 to 30. <coughs> he said, I have thought it necessary to send you to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, 
your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but me also. Uh, he says, I am the more the eager to send him to you that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And then if you go down to chapter 4 and verse 14, and uh, Paul says, it was kind of you to share my trouble, you Philippians, um, uh, no church entered into partnership with me except you. And then he's talking about the fact that they sent this gift to him. All right, so can you see Epaphroditus dispatched from the church to take the gift to Paul? nearly dies on the way because of our ill health. Wanted to stay with Paul a lot longer, but Paul says, no, look, you better go home now. I know you want to stay and help me, but go home now. And he sends the letter, all right. Now, that, that, okay, is how it is that the Philippian church got this letter from Paul, okay. And uh, if you just look at uh, chapter 2 and, and verse, um, chapter 2 and verse 24, um, and he says, I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself shall come to you. So when Paul wrote this letter, he was really looking forward to getting back to this church again to see them all again. All right? So he sent Epaphroditus back. He told them that he was soon going to send Timothy to help them out a bit as well. And he said, and then I hope to come as well. And in actual fact, Paul never made it because he never got out of jail in Rome and he was martyred, you see. So, I mean, Paul, sadly, never actually made it, you know. But he, he, he wrote this letter really hoping he'd get to see them all again. And it never happened because he got killed. Um, now, in regards to this letter, of the letters that Paul wrote and the letters in the Bible, um, it's a fairly unique example. There's something different about this letter to all the others. And the reason is that Paul isn't writing this letter to correct things that were wrong in the church. Most of the letters that Paul wrote were written to deal with situations going on in the church. And a church might get in touch with him and say, help, it's all going wrong. And Paul would write to them to put right and say, look, here's what you do. Okay. But this letter was written as a thank you note for the gift. So Paul was not writing to them to sort anything out. And therefore, Paul was free to simply reveal himself as the man. Can you see? He didn't have a brief. He wasn't having to sort this out and that out. He, he can just write freely. And, and here, we're going to see Paul the man coming out. Really get an insight into him, his heart for God. And also, if you've got a heart for God, you've got a heart for God's people. And it's Paul's heart that really comes out to these Christians. And as we're going to see, Philippi had a really special place in Paul's heart, and we're going to see why that is fairly shortly. Right, having done that, let's get into the letter. All right. <coughs> now, um, when we write letters in the West, it's, dear so-and-so, and then at the end you put love from blah, blah, blah. Now, that's not how they did it in the ancient world, and it's not how they do it in the East today. And if you think, you know, it's a bit stupid, isn't it? Because today you get a letter, and you read the letter. And what's the last thing you find out? Who sent it? I mean, it's silly, really, isn't it? You know, you get a letter, and you go, oh, who's it from? Well, what they did is they started the letter from who it's from. Isn't that sensible? You know, so that's, that's what Paul does. All right, you know. So let's, 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 let's get into this. First one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, that's who it's from, 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now, bishops is one of the Greek words for elders, overseer, is what it actually means. So, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Now, <coughs> there's, there's kind of <coughs> two things to raise there. Notice that Timothy is with Paul. Now, in the same way that Luke pastored the Philippian church for six years until it had its own elders, Timothy pastored the Ephesian church. And when Paul wrote the letters to Timothy, Timothy was the sole leader of the Ephesian church because they weren't ready yet to have their own elders. I just chuck that in for no extra charge. It's totally irrelevant to what I'm going to say next, all right? And what I really want to home in on is that he says, Paul and Timothy, that's who it's from. So here's Paul writing. He says, me and Tim... Right, to put it in the vernacular, me and Tim, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now, the first thing is this. He refers to himself as a servant of Jesus. He does not refer to himself as a leader of Jesus' people. Now, can you see the difference there? Paul doesn't say, you know, Paul, elder and apostles are the people of God. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, can you see? Paul didn't see himself as a leader of men. He saw himself as a servant of God. Now, can you see the difference to that? The difference there? He wasn't the big leader. These guys in the early church, I mean, certainly Paul and people like that, they did not suffer from this, what I call, big man syndrome. See what I mean? Obsessed with the fact that they were leaders. They weren't. They were servants. That's how they saw it. They weren't concerned with the fact that they were in authority. They were concerned with the fact that they were under authority. Can you see? Their concern wasn't, well, we've got authority over the churches. It's we are under the authority of Jesus. We are servants. And I, a lot of Christians have experienced, I think, leadership where the leadership is, is, is more aware that it's a leadership than it is servants of Jesus. And you get into all manner of messes. And you end up with this, I mean, okay, the institutional churches, they give it away with their dog collars and their dresses, don't they? But the point is that even in churches that don't have official vicars who dress up and look like women, the point is that in, in churches that don't have priests or anything like that, you can still find that, you know, you go to the meeting and all the leaders are up on the platform. Can you see? And there's this ridiculous distinction between the leaders and the plebs. Now, when Paul writes, he says, I'm a pleb. I'm one of the servants. I'm not a leader. I'm a servant. I'm not a leader of men. I'm a servant of Jesus. But I do lead men because Jesus wants me to do that. Can you see? He wasn't under this big man syndrome. And the authority that he had as a Christian was the authority of servanthood. It wasn't the authority of being able to boss people around. It was the authority of being able to serve people, to help them to grow in the Christian life. Now, look at this. He says, right, me and... Tim, servants, not leaders of God's people, but servants of Jesus. And he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. He greets the people, he greets the non-leadership body of the church before he greets the elders and the deacons. Now, can you see the emphasis there? Nowadays in churches, it's big leaders meeting big leaders all the time. You see what I mean? I mean, most churches, if a big leader comes to visit them, the plebs don't get a look in because all their big leaders are busy out restaurants entertaining them and stuff like that. It wasn't like that with Paul the Apostle. He was just a pleb. He was one of the lads. There was no distinction between leaders and led in that sense. 
I mean, for heaven's sake. And here, he's writing to the church, and he puts the people, he greets them first, and then he says, oh, with the elders and the deacons. Can you see? It's as if Paul is writing from his heart. He's downplaying eldership. He's downplaying it. And the reason is, and we've seen this again and again in the Church Life series, he's putting the people first and the people who've got, you know, a function in the church last. Because leadership is functional. It's not a positional thing. It's not an authoritative thing. Leadership is purely functional. And Paul here is really downplaying the fact that he's a leader. Because often that needs downplaying. And with leadership, it's not sir... It's one of the lads. Can you see? A leader of God's people isn't someone that you're supposed to call sir. A leader of God's people is one of the lads. Can you see? It's leadership from within, not from above. It's leadership from within and from amongst the people. And Paul gets that in right at the start of the letter. He, you know, he says, look, this is me. This is me. Forget I'm an apostle. Forget I'm an elder. Forget it. It's me. We're all Christians. We're brothers and sisters together. And Paul is really downplaying it. And then in verse 2, all right, he says, Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying here is, 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 is that the idea that Christians, we're here to pass on the grace and the peace of God to other people. That's what we're here for. You and I are here in this world individually as human living means of God's grace and God's peace to be passed on to others through us. Grace, let's take that first, grace. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's what grace is. Grace is totally undeserved kindness. What do we deserve from God? I'll tell you, judgment and lake of fire. What have we got from God? Everything he's got. Because we deserve it? No, because he wants to give it. That is grace. Grace is when you treat someone uh, in such a way where really they need judgment, they need sorting out, they, you know, and I mean, all of us are sinful. We all deserve the lake of fire. But God in his grace has arranged the way that rather than getting the lake of fire, we're going to get an eternity with him in heaven. That is grace. It is undeserved kindness. It is God reaching down to people and saying, but I'm not going to give you what you deserve, I'm going to give you a way of escape, because that's what love does. Now that is our function in this world, if we pass on that grace. So in all our dealings with people, we're gracious. Oh, someone's done us wrong, what are we going to do? Chew them up? We're going to get in there, get our own back? No, we're going to say, you've done me wrong, so I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep loving you, not, oh, you've done me wrong. That's not grace, that's judgment. God's called us to grace. Yeah, there's a time for sorting each other out. Of course there is. But can you see the point? Passing on that undeserved kindness. I don't deserve kindness from God, but I've got it. How could you have anything but kindness from me? Can you see how, how, how ridiculous it was? All of us, we have received the kindness of God. We don't deserve it. How can we pass anything on to each other except that same kindness? Paul says, right, passing the grace of God on to others through us. And he says, peace. What is peace? The peace of God. The absence of hostilities. Oh yeah, people would be hostile against us. But we're not here to be hostile against people. Peace and assured calmness without threat. We're no threat to anyone. Oh yeah, we're a threat to people who don't want to repent. But I mean the point is sometimes we can be what unapproachable, can't we? Oh I, I dare and oh what he might do. That's not we shouldn't be frightened of each other. Because we ought to be the type of people who are so merciful. 
so calm, so laid back. What, darling? You smashed the car up? <laughs> it's only a lump of metal. Yeah? That's right, isn't it? That's right. That's, that's the kind. That's the kind of people that God has called us to be. Assured calmness without threat. <laughs> Try him out on that one. It's, you know, here Paul is saying, look, we, we are passing on God's very nature to you. We, we are channels of God's very nature to, to you at, at the church there. Then at verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He hasn't seen them for four years. But there's no out of sight, out of mind here, is there? I mean, Paul had done so much in the four years since he'd seen them. He was concerned with so many other things and other churches. But the individual churches that he'd been involved with, they never passed from his heart. It wasn't out of sight, out of mind. Can you imagine the size of Paul's heart? Well, not Paul's heart, it's the size of God's heart. And the Bible talks that God says, I will put a new heart within you. The new heart that God's put within us when we were born again is his heart. And God's heart is very big. It wasn't out of sight of the Philippians. I vaguely remember about four years ago, didn't I go out? Check me for artifacts. He loved them. He loved them. He didn't have to go to his diary to sort of rake out all his past journal. Flipping church, flipping. Oh, yes, I remember. That's why I got thrown into jail. Now he, these people were on his heart. And he'd never stopped thanking God for them. Not that he was praying for them all the time. But when his heart turned to the churches in prayer, he prayed for them. He prayed for them. And look, verse 4. He says, Always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. He is still praying for them four years later. He is continuing his prayers for them. And he says with great joy as well. Now, this church, this church is very special to Paul. And it's why this church got the letter here that gives us such an insight into not Paul the Apostle doing his job, sorting out a mess, but Paul the man. The man who you'd have said, oh, you know, let's go out, you know, let's go out to Pizza Hut or something. You know, the man you'd have sat down with them, you know, when there was no business to attend to. Why did the Philippians, you know, get the well, verse five, look, he says, Thankful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul, the reason that these people are so special to Paul is because of their partnership with him in the gospel. Now this word partnership, it's koinonia, and it's the word for fellowship. Whenever you get the word fellowship, it's koinonia. And the word does mean a partnership. It means a sharing. But in the Church Life series, we saw that in the Greek, because Greek words, unlike English words, they don't just mean necessarily what they look like they do at face value. Greek is, is a language that's very communicative. And that's why you might have a word in English where we've got one word, and the Greek language might have seven or eight different words for that one word, each one bringing out a different emphasis. Now, this word koinonia, it's not just any old word for sharing. It's a word for sharing with the emphasis on what you are giving into the sharing. Is it? That's what the word koinonia means. It doesn't just mean partnership in the sense of what you're getting. The emphasis, if I'm in koinonia with you. That means I am giving to you. Is he? Whether or not you're giving back to me isn't the point. If we have fellowship, the emphasis in the Greek word isn't on what you're getting out of that sharing, it's on what you're putting in. That's what fellowship is. 
not what you're getting, it's what you're giving. And if everyone came along, if everyone uh, lived their fellowship life asking, what can I give, how can I serve others, we would all be far more greatly blessed than we are now. Because it's so easy to come, what I need, what I want. Is it? Now the beautiful thing is that you can't outgive God. The more you forget yourself and the more you give to others, the more your needs will be met. And if it's not by others, it will be by God himself. Can you see, you cannot outgive God in any way at all, whether it's financial, but that's not what Paul's talking about here, especially. But the point is, Paul's saying, look, you Philippians, your partnership with me hasn't just been, what well, you know, that, that I've helped you. He says, you have really helped me. Now, if you go back to chapter 4 and verse 14, and we'll see. <coughs> and he says to them, It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Greece, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent me help once and again, i.e. again and again and again. Now, just let this fact get inside your heads. In all the years that Paul was serving the Lord, throughout all the years that Paul was serving the Lord and the churches and building churches, there was only one church that ever supported him financially. It was the Philippian church. All the other churches were happy to get what he could give them, but they wouldn't give him anything in return. The Philippian church was the only church that ever supplied Paul's needs. Now, can you begin to see why these people are so special to Paul? They were the only church who loved him back. You see that? And he says to them, No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Now, can you see why this church was so special, so much in Paul's heart? They were the only Christians who helped him. <laughs> Where it really counted. They were the only church that ever helped him. And even Paul, I mean, there's, there's always such a sad shortage of Christians who'll stand with you, come what may. And, and Paul experienced this as well. The Philippians were the only Christians who stood with him, come what may. And if you just go back into chapter 4 and verse 10, and this, this is beautiful. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. In the prior four years, Paul had thought they'd forgotten him. He thought they'd forgotten him. They were the only church who was really concerned about him, and he thought they'd forgotten him. But as it turned out, by the time Epaphroditus got to Paul, it's just that they couldn't get to him. They hadn't forgotten him, they just couldn't get to him. And eventually they did. And, and, and Paul even ended up thinking that they'd forgotten him. Not that he was moaning and groaning about it or anything like that, but you, you feel the pain in his heart. Uh, but the joy that Epaphroditus arrived, and they hadn't forgotten about him. And yet it's true, Paul was a man who could be beaten to within half an inch of his life, thrown into jail and sing hymns to God. And yes, 
but he could also feel pain when his brothers and sisters that he'd done so much for would do nothing for him. And how happy he must have been when Epaphroditus turned up. You see, Paul was a human being as well. He was a human being as well. And he was really hurting over this. He'd misunderstood. He was really hurting. He thought they'd forgotten him, but they hadn't at all. And, you know, sort of like, you know, people like Paul the Apostle, it's easy to read the Bible and, and Paul's directing here, there and everywhere. That was his job. He was a human being. But the Philippian church were the only ones who really seemed to acknowledge it. And that is why this church had such a, a place in, 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 in Paul's heart. He was a human being with feelings. All right. Now, in, in verse 6, let's keep going. He says, um, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, this, this is the confidence that we can have in the Lord. He says, I am certain that what God has begun in you, he's going to, he's going to bring it to completion. He's going to end it. Now, that is also the confidence that every leader must have. Every Christian can have that confidence, but believe me, every leader must have that confidence from the Lord. Because if you're, if you're sort of helping a church of people to grow and to get closer to the Lord, you've got to know from the Lord that the Lord's going to do it. Otherwise, believe you me, you'd die of despair. And yet this utter certainty is available from the Lord. And Paul had it. He knew that God was working in the churches and that what God had started, God was going to finish it. And it's because a man who's leading with a real burden from the Lord, he has a vision. It's not just a question of saying, well, look, this is what the Bible says, so let's get on and implement it. It is that, but it's far more than that. It's not just schemes cold from the Bible. You know, so, oh, what the Bible says, this, that, and the other. Let's get on with it. It's a vision. It's, it's a burden from the Lord. It's not just we've got to do this, that, and the other. It's that absolute knowing that God is in this. And if God is in this, then it's going to happen. And then, no matter what the difficulties are you come across, and believe you me, the difficulties you come across, insurmountable obstacles, and yet they end up melting away into nothingness, because you know that what God has started, he's going to finish. And if God is going to finish it, then you can keep going. And there's that confidence. And, I mean, obviously, every leader, of course, you know, ends up perplexed, and I don't know what to do, crikey, I'm really stumped here. But it's no use having men leading churches who are all the time panicked, all the time in despair. Can you see? Oh yeah, moments of it, of course, but they have to learn to keep that a little bit to themselves. But it's, you know, it's this burden from the Lord. We know what God is doing. And the reason for this is that elders aren't going it alone. Robert and I aren't going it alone here. We're not a two-elder church, we're a three-elder church. Jesus, he's the chief shepherd. Robert and I are under-elders. Jesus is the chief elder, can you see? And as long as Jesus is doing it, what's the problem? We're going to get there, and Paul, he knew, he had this utter assurance from the Lord. That is why nothing could stop Paul. And nothing can stop a man with a vision from God in his heart if that man is sold out to that vision, come what may, regardless of what it costs him or her. That is, you know, you cannot stop someone like that. And that's why they could throw Paul in jails and jails fell down. Nothing could stop him, and nothing can stop a Christian with that vision in their heart from the Lord as well. Now in verse 7 he says, It's right for me to feel thus about you because I hold you in my heart. 
for you are all partakers with me of grace in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. And here Paul's saying that I hold you all in my heart. He held these people in his heart. Now, we've got to ask ourselves a question here. Do we really hold each other in each other's hearts? Can you see the picture? Paul said, I hold you in my heart. You are part of my life. You are part of me. I hold you in my heart. Now, do we really hold each other in each other's hearts? And I'll throw out another question, all right. Do we, do we really matter to each other? Do we really know each other yet well enough to know whether we matter or not? Can you see? These are people Paul hasn't seen for four years, but he's still holding them in his heart. I mean, sometimes have churches with a mere 40 people in, and we're a very small church, and yet you still have people who are strangers to each other. Can you see? That's, that's small heart, isn't it? Small heart. Go to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, because of course every church, every body, every group of God's people are, are part of, of, of his actual body. And in 1 Corinthians 12, and verse 26, and we, this verse we've seen many times, in, certainly in the church life series, and when we did the spiritual gift series, um, he says, if one member suffers, he's talking about individuals, he's saying each individual Christian is a member of the body of Christ. Now, this word here, member, melos, it is not talking about sign on the dotted line. We don't have church membership here. Why don't we have church membership here? Because the Bible doesn't teach it. The only membership you get in the Bible is that I am a member of the body of Christ in the same way that my arm is a member of my body. Can you see? You can't join a church by signing on the dotted line. You're either part of it or you're not. It's an organic thing, you know. And he says, look, if one member suffers, all suffer together. That's the closeness. That's the closeness that Paul wanted to see in churches. If one member suffers, irrespective of who it is, it might be the church mouse who never says boo to a goose. But Paul said, if any member suffers, then all suffer together. And if one member is honoured, all rejoice together. That is the kind of closeness that Paul envisaged. That was the kind of sharing between people in their lives that Paul's burden was to see working amongst people in the churches. And that's absolutely incredible. Do we feel each other's pains like that? Do we bear each other's burdens in that way? Question, do we know each other well enough to be able to know if we've got a burden or not? Can you see the point? Can you imagine the work that these Christians in the early church were putting into fellowship? The work, they were putting the time and the energy and the work they were putting into involving themselves in each other's lives. I'm not talking about interference, that's not what we're talking about here at all. You don't just march into someone's life, you wait till they invite you in. But the point is the effort, the energy that they were putting into this in the early church. That Paul could say, and it might have been a big church, if someone's hurting, the rest know. Isn't that beautiful? That if someone's hurting, the rest know. It might be the little toe of the body, it might be as insignificant as that. But believe you me, you only realise how important your little toe is when it gets chopped off. Because if you lose your little toe, you've got to learn to walk again. Your balance is completely thrown if you so much as lose one little toe. See? Every member of the body is important. And Paul's, you know, he's saying, look, the most insignificant member, if they're hurting, then the church ought to be hurting with them. But he says, if someone's rejoicing, then let the whole church rejoice with them. 
And James, he said, rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. That's the closeness that, 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 that we know when we're in pain, that we know when we need support and love from each other. And, uh, but, but what he says here, I mean, he was holding them in his heart, but they held him in their heart. Now, that was the difference between this church, sadly, and most of the others. They also held Paul in their heart. And what Paul says here, he says, You are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defence and confirmation of the gospel. Now, the point is, if you hold someone in your heart, then yes, their pain will become your pain and you will respond to it to help in any way you can. But also, if you hold someone in your heart, any blessing they get will be shared with you. Can you see? You can actually receive blessing simply because someone who's in your heart is being blessed. That blessing might be quite apart from you, but if they're in your heart, you're blessed. Now here, Paul is being persecuted for the gospel. And no greater blessing is given to people than when they're persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And what Paul is writing, he says, I'm getting blessed up to the eyeballs here. I mean, tell you, I mean, I'm in jail. I'm going to be martyred. You can't get more blessing from God than, than the, I mean, the knowledge of God. That, I mean, Paul, he knew the Lord like the back of his hand. But one of the reasons was he was so persecuted. And Paul's saying, look, I'm getting blessed up to the eyeballs here. And he writes and he says, and you're sharing in it. You're sharing in it. The Corinthians weren't. Why not? They didn't support him. The Ephesians weren't. Why not? Paul wasn't in their hearts. They were in his heart, but he wasn't in their hearts. But the Philippians, Paul was in their hearts. They were sharing constantly in the blessings of everything that Paul was doing. And so the point is that when you've got someone in your heart, when you're really in significant fellowship with them, if they hurt, you're going to hurt too. But if they're blessed, you're going to share in it. Can you see? And that can, I mean, can you imagine a whole fellowship of people really in each other's hearts? I mean, you've got a major bless-up, haven't you? A major bless-up. I mean, you've got the blessing... Um, of the laws sort of like belting around like a cursor on a computer, bang, 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 you know, blessing everywhere, everywhere, getting deeper and deeper. And so Paul writes them, he says, look, you are sharing in all the blessings that I'm experiencing it. And then he says something which is quite incredible, and, and you'll only see how incredible it is when we go into the Greek, all right? <coughs> because he says in verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says that I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Are you beginning to see how Paul is really talking from his heart? He's really how he, Paul the man, feels. Now then, yearn. He says to these Philippians, he hasn't seen them for four years, he says, I yearn for you. Now that word yearn is epipatheo, and it means to long for greatly. Now, has anyone had a dog who pines when you go away? Or have you heard a dog when master's gone and, 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 and the dog is, oh, you know, like that pining? This is a Greek word for that. Paul says, I'm pining for you. You know, like a dog who's waiting for his master to come back. That is the Greek word. He says, I am yearning, I long after you greatly. I am pining away. And he says, I'm pining away for you <coughs> with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, affection, affection. When, 
When we talk about affection in, in the English language, it's sort of like, you know, a kiss on the cheek or something like that. Well, we, you know, this is all part of being affectionate. That's absolutely right and proper, and it has a place. But it's a rather weak word. I'm, I mean, the translators have translated this word, this Greek word here, um, affection. Now, the Greek word here that has got translated affection is splanknon. Right? Now, let's have a look at Acts 1 verse 18, where that word is used again to find out the real meaning of this Greek word that here has been translated affection. Paul says, I'm pining away with affection. <laughs> all right? Now then, Acts 1 verse 18. All right? There's a little bit about Judas. All right? Judas topped himself. Now this man, I Judas, bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Now, who'd like to say where our word affection is there? It's bowels. Bowels. Splanknon is the bowels, it's your guts. That is the meaning of the Greek word. And I'll solve this mystery for you. In the West, we tend to uh, speak of emotions like of the heart, and it's all rather lovey-dovey. You know, lovey-dovey, so affection and stuff like that. It's all hearts and flowers, isn't it? And it can be a bit wishy-washy, all right. Well... In the Jewish mind, all right, feelings were associated not with the heart, but with the bowels. Now, we all know, really, that when something really hits your emotions, it doesn't hit you in the heart at all. It hits you in the gut. Real deep feeling hits you in the pit of your stomach. My heart has never actually fluttered. <laughs> Do you see? My, my heart has never actually fluttered. I've never felt my heart flutter. But there have been times, whether the feelings have been wonderful feelings or they've been awful feelings, I do know what it's like for the pit of my stomach to go. And every human being has had that experience here and there in their lives. Now, the point is, when Paul says, I am affectionate towards you, what he's saying is not, oh, I, 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 I think you're real nice guys, you know. You know, that's not what he's talking about. Paul is talking about the fact that these people and their situation, they move him to the depths of his being. He's so tied up with them, his feelings are so strong, they are so much held in his heart that, that it, it moves him to the depths of his being. This was the Jewish way, and incidentally the Greek way, to really bring out the difference between something that was shallow and a bit wishy-washy and something that was real, that was gut-wrenching, that had reality, that had marrow in it, that, that, that had real commitment in it. It was something that was going on in your guts, in your intestine, you see. And this, this word, okay, splanknon, which here is rather weakly translated affection, can better be translated <coughs> as compassion. Compassion. Now, the point is, we will understand this word compassion. It's a very misunderstood word. Let's, first of all, look at compassion in its English formulation. First of all, com. Com. All right, we'll come on to passion in a moment. I'm really excited, lads. But first of all, com. All right. Now, when you get that word in our language, it always means alongside. I, you've got a compartment. A compartment in a train. You've only got a compartment because there's another one alongside it. Can you say so you've got compartment, or you've got a compatriot. A compatriot is someone who is alongside you. He's a patriot as well, alongside. Uh, or, for instance, if you say, have the verb to combine. 
when you combine, you bring two things and they're alongside each other. All right. So that's the first bit, com. It means alongside, along with. All right. Now then, <coughs> passion. Well, what does passion mean in the English language? Strong feeling. That's what the word passion means. And isn't it interesting <coughs> that when, uh, you know, sort of like people refer to the death of Jesus, they refer to it as the passion. The feelings, the gut-wrenching significance of what was happening on the cross. The word passion is the only way you can describe it. It was Jesus' passion for a lost humanity that got him nailed to a cross. That's why it's the passion. It was Jesus' love at gut level for us that stuck him on the cross. And it weren't the nails that stuck him there. It weren't the nails that was holding him to the cross. It was his love that was holding him to the cross. Could have clicked his fingers and a legion of angels would have carried him back to heaven and he could have missed the cross completely. That's why it's the passion. <laughs> it's feelings of strength, strong feelings. And the word compassion, all right, it's to feel alongside someone. Now, what it means is to share in what they're going through, to share in what they feel, and therefore act in service towards them. To have compassion on someone is when you're totally identified. Now, it doesn't just have to be through feelings. You don't necessarily just have to have feelings. You can really identify with someone and, and, and have a heart for them without necessarily experiencing feelings. But the point is, it's when someone's situation moves you to the depths of, of your being and you say, right, I'm going to act, I'm going to help. You are moved into action. Compassion cannot sit back and say, what a shame. Compassion gets in there and starts working on the problem. You see, you get in there alongside that person and you start to serve them and to help them. Now that is how Jesus is with us. Jesus is full of compassion for each one of us. He feels our feelings. He's right alongside whatever we are going through. And because that's how he feels towards us, that is what the way in which he wants us to be with each other. He wants that, this affection that Paul says, I've got affection for you. He says, I've got compassion, you're my brothers and sisters. The Lord wants this compassion, his compassion for us, to be spreading out amongst each other so that we share it amongst each other. If God's had compassion on me, I'm going to have compassion on you and you're going to have compassion on me, can you see? We're going to get in there with each other. We're going to be driven to help, driven to serve driven to do what is ever needful to help whatever the need is at any one time. All right. Just go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Loads of Christians always asking the question, why is being a Christian so tough? They say, right, here's one of the answers. <laughs> Romans 5 verse 3. All right. And he says, more than that, huh, more than that. This is Paul. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Do we? Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing, I mean, not, Paul didn't enjoy sufferings. I mean, you know, we're not called to be masochists or something like that, all right? But then again, you're here tonight, perhaps you are, I don't know. He says, it's obviously enjoyed it. He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't go against us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, what Paul's saying here, when you've been through hell on earth, when you've really been, you know, when you've really had a, a real hard time following Jesus, when you've really been through bad problems and, and suffering in your own life, what does that do? 
that produces character in you. And what then? Well, that means that the comfort, what you've received from God in those hard times, is now in your heart to pass on to others when they're going through hard times. You see? And when someone else is going through hard times and re really cocking it up, really getting it wrong, it won't be, a, oh, you're doing really badly. You know, point, point, condemn, condemn. Because when you were going through a hard time, you cocked it up just as much as they are, and I know I did as well. Now, God didn't go, oh, you're doing it wrong, all right? He helped. He helped. So that means that even if someone's doing it really badly and they need to have correction, the point is it's a correction of being positive. It's not, oh, aren't you doing badly? It's getting in there with the person say, hey, look, now, I made exactly the same mistake. I, I screwed up just, just the same way. Let's try it like this. Because when you've been through suffering and you've received God's comfort and his compassion, you can pass it on to others when they are. So it's absolutely incredible. So that's why Paul says we rejoice in our suffering. And of course Paul did. It was the suffering that gave him such a big heart. And if we want a big heart, then we're going to have to suffer our way into it. You know, We're going to have to know what it is to have people treat us badly and to turn around and bless them. We're going to have to get used to people ripping our name to shreds behind our backs and loving them. You know, why do we want to defend our, oh, what have you about me, you know? I mean, you know, all this stuff, it can humble us, it can bring us to the end of ourselves rather than getting the ump with it all. You know, it's this, because it's all making us forget ourselves. And the more we forget ourselves, the more we're going to see Jesus. And the more Jesus is going to be produced or producing his life in and through us. So then, the suffering and pain that we go through releases the love of God in our hearts for other people. And so that is why Paul says, look, you people are in my heart, and I have compassion. I move to the depth of my being for you. I know what it is to suffer, all right, but, and that's given me a big heart, and I've just got the love of Jesus in my heart for you, all right. And then in verse 9, he prays for them, and he says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now then, Paul says they've already got this. They've already got love, and they've already got knowledge, and they've already got discernment, but he says, I want you to have more. Now, however far we've come in following Jesus, it's not far enough. <laughs> Easy, there's always more to come. So Paul says, I want you to have more. I don't care how much you've been blessed. I want you to be blessed more. I don't care how mature you are. I want to see you more mature, all right? And so he says, right, I want you to have these things. Now, look at the things he prays. First of all, he says, I want you to have more knowledge, all right? Knowledge. Not just love. He says, I want you to have more love, but he says, I want you to have knowledge and discernment as well. Now, often, we're very hot on love. But if we get more love, that'll be enough. Well, it won't, and Paul knew that. He didn't want them to just have more love. He wanted to have more knowledge and discernment as well. Now, why is that? Right, knowledge. Why did Paul want them to have knowledge? Well, I'll tell you. Love on its own, desires to help. But it doesn't necessarily know how to. Now, can you see the problem with love on its own? Love without knowledge wants to help, but it doesn't know how to. So love without knowledge is extremely impractical. It's no use having the heart to do something if you don't know how to do it. So Paul says, I don't just want you to grow in love, I want you to grow in knowledge. And obviously he's talking about the knowledge of God's word, the knowledge of God himself. And God's word, increased knowledge of the word of God, must be sought all the time by us. It's knowledge of the Lord himself, obviously. 
It's knowledge of what he's done in Jesus. It's knowledge of how he wants to live. But it is also knowledge, increased knowledge and awareness of our own sinfulness and depravity. Unless we are all the time growing in our own knowledge of our own sinfulness, we're going to end up so deceived. And we need to grow in knowledge of all these things. You see, anyone who you want to help, no matter how much you love them, no matter how much compassion, compassion gets you in there and say, right, I've got to help them. But if once you've got in there, you find you've got no knowledge, what are you going to do? Well, you can sit there and howl with them, I suppose. But that's not helping them. Can you see? And so anyone you seek to help is by definition going to be going through real bad sin problems. How do I know? Because I am always going through real bad sin problems. It's my nature. Can you see? Now, the only way to be able to help each other in real bad sin problems is to have a knowledge of our own sin problem and a knowledge of how it is that God works in us to overcome it and set us free from it. Can you see the point? That knowledge of God's word and how he works has got to be sought all the time. We must ensure that we're growing in knowledge of God's word, which means awareness of our own sinfulness and God's mercy in dealing with it. The best way, or the only way that God can create merciful hearts in us is by showing us what we deserve, but the way he's actually treated us. The only way you'll ever really be merciful towards others is when you realise fully just how merciful God has been to you. Is he? It's self-righteous people who have no mercy. They haven't received any. You know, they don't think that God's really had to stoop down low to them because they're pretty good boys anyway, aren't they? So they've got no mercy for others. But when you know that you deserve the lake of fire and every fibre of your being is sinful and yet God has yet loved you, when you've tasted the bitterness of your sinful nature to the dregs, you'll have mercy on other people. It can't be any other way because you'll know how much God has had mercy on you. So knowledge We've got to grow in the knowledge of God's word. And then also, he says, discernment. He says, I don't just want you growing in love, it's got to be knowledge. And he says discernment as well. Now, this, <coughs> this Greek word discernment is a thesis. Now, forget about Corinthians where it says discernment of spirits. Forget that because that's a different word. Put that to one side. That's, that's not what we're dealing with here. Okay. And it simply means to perceive or to understand. All right? Now, the point is that that knowledge that we get from the Bible has got to be appropriated and it's got to be applied. Because that knowledge is more than merely facts and concepts and information from the Bible. Anyone can get doctrine into their heads. But that is not the true knowledge that Paul is talking about here. You see, Paul says it's not enough to have love alone, but you've got to have love and knowledge. And it's a thesis, it's discernment that really links knowledge and love as one. Let me explain in regards to this. Go over to, to Ephesians 4, verse 15. Ephesians 4, verse 15, all right? It's the book before Philippians. And Paul simply says, rather, speaking the truth in love. Now just get those words, speaking the truth in love, alright? So there, Paul talks about truth and love. Now obviously, truth and knowledge are the same thing, alright? Now then, <coughs> the point is, love without knowledge or truth is nice, but it's not very practical. It doesn't get the job done. However, however, 
If you have the truth without love, that is horrible. That is horrible. If you've just got truth and knowledge without love, that is awful. Anyone can tell anyone that they're doing it wrong because of their knowledge of the Bible. But if you correct people, if you try and help them in this rather stern, cold way without loving your heart, that is doing more harm than good because it can damage and destroy people who could have been helped if you'd spoken the truth in love out of a compassion that has come from Jesus. All right. Nothing is more awful than Christians who have the truth, doctrine, advice, correction, etc., but they don't have love and compassion. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, I might have all the gifts of the Spirit, and he says, I might have all understanding and all knowledge. He says, but if I have not love, it's nothing. It's nothing. So it's not enough just to have the knowledge. That love has got to, to, to go with it as well. Just go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Try and bring this principle out. In John chapter 1, first of all, verse 14. It says, speaking of Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Now go down into verse 16. And from Jesus' fullness have we all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now what John is saying here, that Moses, the law, came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now the point is, but isn't the law grace and truth? The answer is no, it's not. Jesus is grace and truth. Let me explain here. Moses always represented the law. He brought the Ten Commandments, okay? And what the law did was revealed sin and brought death. The law was never given to help anyone. The law is simply there to show you that you need help. God gave the law to show us that we can't obey it. The Ten Commandments are there to show us we can't obey them and that we're sinners. Boom, boom. If you try to use the law in any other way than simply to demonstrate to people they're sinful, you're going to destroy them. All right, okay. So, Moses, who represented the law, he brought God's people out of Egypt, and the idea was that they could go into Canaan. All right? So, Moses got them out of Egypt, but did he ever get them into Canaan? No, he didn't. They all died in the wilderness, Moses included. The law is death. Now, it took Joshua, and Joshua is the Hebrew counterpart to the Greek transliteration Jesus. So, Joshua really is the same name as Jesus. Joshua is the picture of Jesus. And it was Joshua who actually got God's people into Canaan. Alright? Now, the point is <coughs> that if you have truth without love, if you have knowledge without grace, all you're going to do is bring death and destruction it will lead absolutely nowhere. It will bring condemnation, guilt and fear. But grace and truth together always reveal Jesus because grace and truth is what Jesus actually is. Can you see? So what Paul says, I want you to have love and knowledge. He says, but you've got to have discernment. I.e., he's saying, you've got to have in your heart the coming together of love and knowledge so that you're not these rather silly people who are full of love, but you haven't the foggiest idea what to do because you've never been bothered to get Bible teaching. That's no help to anyone, all right? But he says, on the other hand, don't you dare be those kind of people who've got Bible teaching up to here, and they're cold, pharisaical, harsh. Quick to say, oh, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But all these people can do, they can destroy you, but they can't lead you into grace. They can't pick you up again and rebuild you. Only the grace and truth of Jesus 
is able to do that. And that is why any Phariseeism has got to be banished from our hearts. And so Paul was saying, look, you've got love and you've got knowledge or truth and you've got discernment. You know how to bring the two together. You know how to move in maturity in the Holy Spirit in this area of life. But he says, I want to see it happening more and more and more in you. All right. Now, next time, we're going to carry on with verse 10 and see where it leads to. So we'll end it there.